0: Goddag, mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. I dag skal vi tale med Louis Menon, som er professor på Harvard University. Og han er fast skribent hos The New Yorker. Og for 20 år siden fik han den amerikanske American Book Award pris for sin bog om de amerikanske pragmatiske filosofer, den hedder The Metaphysical Club. Men alt det kan være lige meget fordi Louis Menon, han har nu begået sit livsværk. Det er en bog på 900 sider, som handler om, hvordan det amerikanske kulturelle herredømme i verden blev skabt. Den handler om, hvordan den magt, USA fik i verden efter 2. verdenskrig, bygget på kultur, var inspireret af kultur, og også brugte kultur til at udbrede kapitalismen og demokratiets velsignelser som propaganda i hele verden. Good evening to our viewers here in Denmark, and especially good afternoon to you, Louis, who is uh, with us from the United States. Thank you very much for taking your time and being with us.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: I've had the privilege to read your extraordinary book, The Free World, before it came out. It's out in April, isn't that right? April 20th.
1: In the U.S., that's right.
0: And it's just a remarkable enterprise. I can't believe you put this one of
1: It's
0: <laughs> a book of nearly 900 pages and it encompasses such a large theme and such a large topic and you do it with such eloquence. So okay. thank you very much for writing the book.
1: Ja, takk jer, that's great.
0: Den er fantastisk fortelling om et kulturelt herredømme vi alle sammen lever med, men som vi aldri faktisk helt selv har forstått hvordan ble etablert. Jeg lover, hvis man lytter meg litt, så får man det forklart. Could you describe to me what is the structure of the book, because there's a very special structure how how you chose to compose the book.
1: Yeah, the book is about art and thought from the end of the Second World War until the U.S. got involved in the Vietnam War. So about 1945 to 1965, this sort of first 20 years of the Cold War. And uh, what I tried to avoid doing was writing a big survey that took in everything because I wanted to kind of do a top to bottom analysis of various cultural phenomena in this period, which on the surface look quite different, but that share certain underlying features without trying to make gross generalizations about those 20 years. So the structure of the book is has 18 chapters and each chapter takes up a different set of figures and a different topic, but they all kind of end up tying together, I hope anyway, that's, okay. the, that's the aspiration.
0: They really do. I, it reminded me of this uh, novel by the French writer Georges Perec. You know, <laughs> which takes place in this. He's here La Vie Motte d'emploi, which takes place in a large, large building, and he tells the stories of people in different apartments. Yeah. And in the end, then you have the whole house mapped out, but it takes a long time to 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 get there.
1: Yeah, it does take a long time, but it's great to be compared to Georges Perec. I think <laughs> that's wonderful.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but. Normally, when we talk about the free world, we say, well, that's the American version of the West. That's what, when we say the West here, here they say, that's what they mean by the West. That's, that's the free world. And then people mention uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, uh, how the United Nations was established, the NATO Alliance, and of course the Cold War. But we normally point to political, economic, and institutional factors. But your book is very, it's an intellectual history. It's based on the assumption that culture has a large role to play and culture was part of creating the free world. What are your own reflections about that? How do how, how should we understand the role that culture played in that period?
1: So I, I, it's just a very exciting period. Um, uh, those first 20 years after the end of the Second World War uh, for lots of reasons um, and The reasons don't all have to do with the US by any means, because one of the things that you learn when you try to analyze these different art movements and movements of thought and so forth is that it's quite international. There's a great deal of cultural circulation uh, that's brought about partly by the US being actively engaged with the rest of the world in good ways and bad ways, uh, partly because of the general economic growth that characterizes this period all around the world. Not just in western europe or the u.s uh, but south america in the warsaw Pact powers it's just enormous period of economic growth that produces a lot of circulation of goods and ideas that then get transformed when they go from one culture to another so one of the things i'm trying to capture in the book is to try to be less u.s centric which is a tendency of american historians Mm -hmm. when trying to explain you know things uh and to try to be a little more global there's there's things i wish i'd been able to include that I just couldn't get to. But uh, it's quite an interesting period when you look at it from a global perspective.
0: I learned a lot about Europe from actually reading the book because I, I always thought, well, Americans, they went to Europe to learn something about the intellectual life. you know, Gertrude Stein went to Paris, Hemingway went to Paris. There were a lot of writers going to Paris. And I didn't think of that in a systematic way before reading your book, that there were so many European writers and thinkers going to the US after the second world war and then the u.s kind of became the place where people go where where writers go where artists go and today you know we have writers from paris and london moving to new york and i don't think you have a lot of writers from new york moving to paris anymore no
1: it's too expensive now (laughs) (laughs) i mean one of the reasons that so many people went to paris not just americans and uh But a lot of Europeans immigrated there. It was a city of immigrants really for a long time in the early 20th century because it was very cheap because the franc was just in terrible shape all the time. So if you had pounds, British pounds or American dollars you could live very inexpensively there. So that's a lot of the reason why people went over there. That continued after the second world war. Even after 1945, many American artists went to Paris to study there, musicians, writers. Uh, a lot of very famous American books got written in Paris after the war. Then in 1959, the second De Gaulle government, they basically instituted fiscal Mm -hmm. reforms that stabilized the franc and it became expensive to live in Paris. (laughs) So nobody goes there anymore. Yeah.
0: So is it also fair to say that this is the period when the cultural hegemony of the United States was established? And I think after having read your book that one of the reasons why America became so culturally dominant was because you were able to take in influences from all over the world, impulses from Europe, impulses from North Africa, that this is kind of, this is how we came to live in a world that is culturally dominated by America.
1: Yeah, that's the big shift that you see in this 20 years. By the end of the 20 years, everything has changed in the US, in particular New York, become kind of the center of the art world and publishing and so forth. Um, And and that's the result, as you say, partly of the huge immigration to the US really beginning in 1933 with the rise of Hitler. Immigration is very restrictive in this period in the US until 1965, but they carefully cherry picked the intellectuals, the scientists, the artists who wouldn't be a liability on the state if they came to the US. That's how you get sort of Einstein and Schoenberg (laughs) and all these people coming. They they wouldn't take ordinary people, uh, but they were able to take these people uh, and also a lot of artists. that has a lot to do with it. I would say before 1945, most of the world did not think of American culture as particularly significant. The U.S. was not a big player in the art world or the literature world. And after 1965, that had completely changed. So that's this is the period when that happens. You're completely right.
0: And, and what I, I, I know there are many factors explaining it from a lot of people going to university earlier in America to establishment of a establishing a youth culture, more people going to the movies. So they, it's a very difficult story to tell causally, but but, yeah. but but what are the factors driving it anyways, if you should just summarize it?
1: Yeah. Why well, did the
0: US became this cultural hegemon?
1: Yeah, I mean, part of it does have to do with economic growth, but part of it also has to do with um, the establishment of uh, kind of an infrastructure for the arts and for literature to publishers, art galleries, art dealers, Uh, critics, museums that are interested in contemporary painting. The U.S. before 1945, nobody cared about American painting. Um, (laughs) They bought European painting, um, and they mostly bought old European painting. But after 1965, people started buying contemporary American art in, in the United States. There weren't art galleries to sell that stuff. There weren't dealers who dealt in that stuff. So the early abstract expressionists didn't have a market. But the pop artists who come on the scene in the early 60s there's an art gallery world, there's a museum world, there's an audience for art, contemporary art. That's completely changed from before 1945. So that's the kind of thing that produces the possibility of people making art in the U.S. and making a living doing that. And that's really transformational.
0: And normally I would also think that America dominated the world with this pop culture. You know, if I ask my yeah. parents, they're born in the 40s. I mean, yeah. they felt they knew Elvis Presley personally. And they, they're <laughs> born in the countryside, you know? When John F. Kennedy was shot, my, my mother, my mother remember her mother saying, they shot him, they shot him. You know, yeah. this is in, in rural Denmark. So popular culture was big in, 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 yeah. in Europe. Your popular culture yeah. is, is so dominant. What role do you think American fine arts and modernist painting and the other, what we'd call highbrow culture, yeah. What role did that
1: play? Well, I think that you're right, that the, it's commercial culture, it's popular culture that went international in a big way. And it was unproblematically. People love listening to rock and roll. <laughs> they love going to Hollywood movies. Um, even people like Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre who basically hated America. <laughs> you know, They love Daffy Duck and they love Westerns and they love popular songs. So that culture circulated globally um, Partly because people were interested in it and there was a market for it and partly because it's all the GIs brought it with them when they went all over the world during the Second World War. That had a big influence on various people. So the Beatles listened to music that the GIs had brought over and people read comic books that the GIs had brought over, American magazines and so on. So that's a big uh, lever for creating this kind of cultural mobility. The fine arts is more complicated because... Interestingly, the American government, both covertly and and not covertly, tried to promote American arts by sending exhibitions of American painting abroad, American music, uh, by circulating American modern literatures, so we call highbrow literature abroad. I'm not clear that that had a big impact culturally on the rest of the world. It comes back usually to the United States that are quite different transformed form. Uh, I think what had a bigger impact really was people like Elvis Presley and, okay. and things like the movies. Um, Uh, But one of the interesting things about the period is the extent to which the American government felt that by showing modernist art abroad, they were advertising the United States as a real civilization, not just a materialist society about making money and cars and stuff that actually could produce fine art. Um, That was the purpose, I think, of doing it. The second thing that was important for the American government in doing that was to spread the idea that there's no single American style of art or style of writing, unlike the Soviet Union, so they set, usually tried to send a diversity of kinds of painting or kinds of literature around to show the U.S. was a place where artists had the freedom to create the way they wanted to. And that was thought to be a big selling point in the Cold War.
0: I think that's such a. I, I never, I never understood that before. That that the Cold War meant that you wanted to show that you were a culture of diversity and yeah. different forms of yeah. e- expression. That's kind of. How we handled having been occupied by the Germans, you know, they were totalitarian with their culture. So we wanted to regain control over Denmark afterwards by showing that we had different forms of of culture. Just the plurality in itself became an argument for democracy.
1: That's right. So that's what freedom means. That's what free world means. You can do whatever you want. The state is not going to censor you or dictate to you how you should paint or how you should write.
0: And there's another thing that I would, I've always been very impressed by: the fact that in American popular culture, you often see countercultural heroes. They claim the basic ideals of America. Like yeah. you know, you have uh, Sailor Ripley in uh, *Wild at Heart* by David Lynch. He has this snakeskin jacket, and <laughs> uh, and and he's like he's like this 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 rock and roll countercultural hero. And he says, for me, this jacket is a symbol of my individuality. And my belief in personal freedom and yeah. pursuit of happiness—that yeah. the counterculture, to a certain extent, actually confirms the basic ideals of uh, of American.
1: Totally, like, yeah, totally. I mean, the beat writers were promoted in the New York Times. You know, the Beats were exactly the kind of subversives that the mainstream wanted, uh, because they, as you point out, they represented independence of spirit and so forth, nonconformity. Those were all good things. On the on the view of the mainstream, so yeah, it's true.
0: And in a, and and you you describe how the American government, or at least the the CIA, they understood that 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 actually was an asset to the American society that yeah. you could import criticism of your own government. Can you explain how how they did that?
1: They, so they they did it. It's. It's paradoxical. They, the CIA, yeah. as you, yeah, the CIA, as you suggested, had a whole covert funding system, quite enormous. I mean, dozens and dozens of organizations were secretly funded by the CIA. And one of the things that they created was the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was based in Paris, um, which is supposed to be an independent organization mm-hmm. with no governmental support, but actually was a creature of the CIA. And the Congress for Cultural Freedom published magazines in all the European countries encounter in Britain, Der Monat in Germany and Italy and France and Spain as well. And they published the same American writers who were writing for places like Partisan Review or The New Yorker or places like that in the U.S., uh, many of whom were quite critical of American policy. And they had no idea that they were were being funded, paid by the CIA. So when this all came (laughs) out in the mid-1960s, there was this huge shock and people said, well, nobody ever told us what to say. The whole point being, they didn't have to be told what to say; they were saying exactly what they, yeah, I wanted them to say. It was a huge crisis for American intellectual life, which we've never totally recovered from. I would say you've never recovered from that. Oh, uh, yeah, because there's a great suspicion now of American cultural diplomacy, that is some kind of nefarious scheme. When you use the word American hegemony, that captures what I think people yeah. feel about it. this. is a kind of This is a kind of constant effort to to supplant. Uh, local cultures with American goods, American culture, and people didn't think that in 1945 and 1955. They started thinking it after 1965.
0: Something else that's interesting is the way that that the free world takes on a certain guiding role for the colonialized countries. That you see that you see James Baldwin. I, I know he's he's American, but you see them saying that that the values that non-white people needed were right there in front of them. They were the values of Western civilizations. All the non-white world had to do was own them. I think that was, that's a very, very interesting point.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So One of the interesting things that happens in this period is that there's kind of an intersection between the American civil rights movement, which was to end racial segregation in the US with decolonization uh, of the old European colonies, which You know, they're basically talking about similar people who had suffered under a system of racial oppression for for decades, not to say centuries. But those two movements didn't have that much in common because for the Americans like Baldwin or Richard Wright, uh, American writers who are quite well known internationally, uh, the model for what uh, the decolonizing countries should want, the West African countries, the countries in the Caribbean should want, is the American model. They want to be like they should be they should use Western modernity as exemplified in the U.S. as the model of what they wanted. So they didn't all agree with that. They felt that there was an African culture and there was a culture of the African diaspora that didn't have to uh, follow the American model. So there's an interesting debate in the 50s that goes on about this. But you're right. People like Baldwin and Wright, who are very critical of American racial, uh, the racial relations, are still holding up the U.S. as what other people should want.
0: Yeah, and you also see anti-colonialists like Franz Fanon, who was brought up in in Matinique but but was educated in in French schools. And and he also supports the basic ideals of of the free world against the colonial power. Is it fair to say that they could use the anti-colonials, that they could use the Western ideals to free themselves of the old Western powers?
1: Yeah, so that's true for Fanon. Um, it's true for Césaire, I think, too. Uh, they're both from Martinique. The, so for them, yeah, they bought that, they got that idea that this was, that the West also offered an alternative to colonialism, and they wanted to kind of take advantage of that. I think later, Fenol becomes a little bit different from the Fenol of the 1950s, but yeah. Um, so, that's part of, so that's part of what's going on. And I think there's no question that decolonization would have happened with or without the Cold War, because the European... Countries after the Second World War just couldn't afford to keep their empires. So that was going to happen anyway. But the question was, where were those decolonized countries going to tilt in the Cold War? And the U.S. wanted to show that the U.S. was on their side. In other words, that they wouldn't tilt towards the Soviet Union and China. Um, so that was a, that's what Vietnam is all about, basically. So that was a fundamental geopolitical factor in what we're talking about but we're also talking about what does it mean to be black? What does it mean to be black in America? What does it mean hmm. to be black in, in Senegal or Martinique? Those are all sort of more philosophical questions that these people have to deal with.
0: And that's another very interesting aspect in your book because I think you in Denmark, you know, we grow up with American story, uh, your, your history of slavery and civil rights and we see the movies of, from uh, Selma to 12 Years a Slave. All these movies are here. My kids know more about how <laughs> Black Americans lived in the 1860s than they know about how Danes lived 100 years ago, because that's just that's just in the culture. But something that is very very difficult for us to understand as non-Americans, at least for me, it is, it's the way that it seems that white Americans have a desire for the for Black America, that they have a longing for Black America's culture, their way of seeing, and then on the other hand, that they suppress them and that they, they, they brutally neglect and, and humiliate them. And there are some parts of, of the book where you actually describe that, you call it the complicated desire to be black or act black. Yeah. Can you try to explain that to us? Because that's very difficult for me to understand.
1: Yeah, it goes way back before the civil war. Um, there's blackface minstrelsy. Many of the white abolitionists wanted to think of themselves as black. Um, and then of course, in the 20th century, a lot of black popular culture, particularly the music becomes a kind of appropriated by white musicians and becomes very much part of mainstream American popular music culture. Uh, and that cop, that's a complicated thing for the reasons that you give, which is that to listen to a song performed by a black artist is very different from sending your child to an integrated school. Um, and so they wanna, in a way they wanna have it both ways. The way I put it in the book is that Entertainment culture is really what a lot of white Americans know about Black people. Those are the Black people they know, the people they see on television, or whose records they listen to or movies they go to. Um, but you can sort of act Black in that context because when you go home, you can sit in the front of the bus. You can, the second skin comes off, as it were. So that's a fascinating feature of this period, particularly the 1950s with the popularity of jazz and all kinds of feelings of white jazz listeners about this being a Black music, Wanted to identify with it, wanted to sort of understand its spirit and so forth. Um, and that's a that's something I don't talk that much about in the book, but I can easily have an whole chapter on jazz.
0: And you don't see that with other minorities in America, you don't see that with the Hispanic population now that you you that the white population they want to act like them or they want to yeah. listen to their music or sing their music. It's like there is this that there's a special love-hate relationship. I know it's a very banal way of no, you're
1: you're right. It's just it's it's part of the fabric of American life since the beginning. Um, the fact that these two races uh, have this very contentious relationship, and and therefore it affects the way people think about themselves. It affects, affects the culture. And It is true. You're right. It doesn't really touch on other other racial minorities in the U.S. It's it's quite a different thing. Um, and it's, it's fascinating, really, and it seems just never ends. Uh, it's not like what well, we got on the other side of that issue. We're still living through it today.
0: Another part of this period or, or another minority of this period is the women. I didn't know, actually, that there were more women in the workforce before Second World War than you had in 1963, and you know, yeah. I, I I love the stories of Franklin D. Roosevelt, and I read all the biographies because, yeah. and, and I never, and I think that's how they they made the the American welfare state, and he revolutionized American industry, and he revolutionized American government, and made a social compact. But yeah. I never realized that women were not part of the deal. That no. that. Why were women not part of, of this uh, New Deal uh, progress in America? It's
1: a it's a it's a it's a mystery. I really think it's a mystery. I mean, what in whose interest did it serve to have half of the population not in the workforce to discourage them from entering the workforce, even from discourage them from getting education? It's insane. I mean, it's if you want to have a prosperous economy you want to expand your pool of workers you don't want to exclude people on a completely irrelevant basis of gender but that's what the united states basically did until the mid 1960s Um, so yeah but 1963 the situation of women in the u.s was worse than it was in the 1920s Uh, fewer women were going to college fewer women were getting advanced degrees women were having third and fourth children which they didn't have before Um, They stayed in the home and they were basically acculturated to stay in the home. So that was something that was a bomb waiting to go off. And what's amazing is it took so long, 1963, really, that it went off in the U.S. And once that happened, that really changed everything. I think the women's movement was a huge impact on education and on the arts and on obviously the workplace, too. So that was something that happens in this period that's very important. But it's not something that the, that was the result of deliberate
0: intentions from the government. It's not no. like you had right. a government saying, well, we want to keep women out of the workforce. We have this conservative ideology to support this progressive welfare state. It's yeah. like an unintended consequence, isn't it?
1: Totally unintended. I mean, I'll give you an example of how intended it was. 1964, that's the year the United States passed the Civil Rights Bill, which created racial equality, government, required racial equality for, uh, for everybody employment in employment and other areas. And in the section of the bill that covers employment, a Southern senator or a congressman named Howard Smith from Virginia introduced an amendment that added sex as a protected category. And it was generally thought this was a poison pill because by putting sex in, it would frighten Northern senators away from voting for the Civil Rights Act. But nobody paid attention to it. <laughs> and when the Civil Rights Act passed, women were protected for the first time in American history by a law saying they couldn't be discriminated against in the workplace. Before that, you could discriminate with impunity against women. You could tell them you can't, you can't apply for this job. You could fire them from being pregnant. I mean, they were had no protections. But suddenly the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was not intended to cover gender at all, included them in its employment provisions. And that is really the lever that the women's movement used to open up employment for women in the United States. And that was, nobody intended that.
0: You write also that something that I was never aware of either that that the main audience of uh, youth culture uh, was originally women, that, that yeah. there were a lot of young women watching Elvis Presley reading magazines, that their desires were the desires uh, fulfilled by by yeah. new popular culture, the Beatles, Elvis Presley, and a lot of us. How does that fit into this story?
1: Well, it's fascinating because the audiences for Elvis Presley were mostly girls, young women. The audiences for the Beatles, you could see them on Ed Sullivan's show. you probably see those clips from 1964. Yeah, yeah. They're all girls. And uh, those are the people who, for whom these goods were marketed. So girls, young women, teenagers bought uh, fashion design for teenagers. They bought records. Um, they they were the they bought cosmetics. They were the market for a lot of what's called youth culture, the consumer part of youth culture. Not boys. Boys are interested in cars. They couldn't afford cars. Cars weren't marketed to boys. <laughs> but a lot of this stuff was marketed to girls. What's what's interesting about what happened to all of that is that after 1965 or so, the field of popular music got completely taken over by white men who then defined what rock and roll was and who sort of started to create the rock canon and everything, even though basically that music was made possible by the fact that there was an enormous female audience for it, also an enormous non-white audience for it. So the rhythm rhythm and blues stuff was all basically marketed to black teenagers. They're the ones who made that kind of music hot and popular. There's people like Elvis to come along and and cover it.
0: Was that the result of strategic decisions from the industry that we want to target this wild, white male industry, or was it just something that happened that this culture that was made for the young women and that must to a certain extent have empowered them. And this culture that was made originally by young black artists and young black musicians that it was appropriated and made for for white males. Was that decisions made by the industry or just market forces?
1: Yeah. And like all these things, it's a combination of factors mm-hmm. It's not like one thing. But I think one thing that's important in understanding what happens with Elvis Presley is that when you listen to the radio and you listen to a rock and roll rhythm and blues song, you don't know the race of the artist because you can't see the artist. But When you watch television, you do know. So television in the 1950s, when Elvis started did not like to show black performers because it would alienate viewers in certain parts of the country, white viewers. So to go on television and sing a song, you basically had to be white. And part of what made Elvis possible, and I think he was a great talent period, but what made it possible was that he was perfect to sing this music on television. He's totally acceptable Southern white guy uh, who could sing this music, which was originally performed a lot of it by black performers uh, and, and, and that enabled it. But that also mainstreamed that music. The market for music before that had been quite diversified because of radio, but television makes it more homogeneous again. Um, so that's part of what happens. And then I think then the rest of it's a little hard to explain how it is that suddenly the male audience becomes the dominant audience for that kind of music. And sorry, of we're not the time the Beatles come here. That's a little harder to uh, to figure out. But that's what happens to it. So that when you when you people tell the story of rock and roll, for example, they just leave out all the black teenagers and all the female fans who made that music possible.
0: Yeah, I remember Bruce Springsteen writing about it in his autobiography that when he was a very young musician that he would have white and black audiences, but then that gradually changed. And yeah. And in the middle of the 70s, it was just white audience. And then rock had become like a, a white musical genre. That's
1: right. That's right. Yeah.
0: Another character who's very that, there are so many great characters in, in 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 your in your in your in your book is is Andy Warhol and when yeah. you read him in this in this context yeah. you I, I I realize what a revolutionary figure he was you know oh, how yeah. hardworking and dedicated and strategic yeah. he was how, how do you see the significance of Andy Warhol in a larger perspective
1: Yeah, he's a he's an incredible artist and uh, I mean a lot of that's obscured by the fact of his popular reputation and his association with the factory crowd and you know all that other stuff but he was a great artist and my take on Warhol is among other things that makes him important is because he actually reacted against the avant-garde of his time uh, he, he showed them up and uh, that was a big part of him and I think people didn't really get uh, but he was very hardworking. He worked all the time. He made thousands and thousands of works of art. He made hundreds of movies. Um, and for this brief period between 1962, when he had his first show, and 1968, when he was shot, he, he was a dominant figure in the art world, uh, not just in New York. And uh, and he had a big influence, obviously, on the next generation of artists.
0: But he also pioneered something else that the distinction or the opposition between business and art that yeah. he attacked that de- yeah. De- deliberately yeah how, how did he do that
1: that wasn't so popular so so in the so in the in the, early, in the 60s the period i was talking about 62 he has the first show that's the Campbell soup cans that show's actually in la because he couldn't get a new york gallery uh, and then 1968 when he shot by this uh, woman valerie solanas um he didn't make any money really on the art he made a lot of money as a commercial artist in the 50s that's what he was living on but after he got shot he kind of retooled and he started practicing what he called business art which is basically painting for money so he painted a lot of portraits of rich people and charged a lot of money for that and he became quite wealthy on his art for the first time and i think that he did that deliberately um, because he wanted to expose the idea of the independent artist as kind of a fake, that artists are fundamentally business people, they manufacture products and they try to sell them. But that didn't go over well. So part of the reason that Warhol after 1968 becomes less central is because that was the one move that people couldn't accept, the corrupt artist. But that's the move that he made. um, And that's consistent with what he did through his whole career, which is to subvert people's ideas of what it meant to be an artist. That's the one idea that people had a hard time accepting. <laughs> yeah, the corrupt artists or the business artists. But if you think about people like Jeff Koons,
0: exactly. that's where it
1: comes from. Or Damien Hirst, that's where it comes from. It comes from that That's the Warhol it comes from.
0: Yeah, and, and if you look at the pop stars of the 60s and the hip-hop and the pop stars today, back then they were opposed to the signs of wealth and being yeah. rich and opposed yeah. to the conservative upper classes. Now you have... Rock stars, pop stars, showing off their wealth.
1: Yeah, bragging no, about. The yeah, they,
0: they're yeah. so rich that their kids can be on Forbes list. That's what Beyonce is is saying. They're showing their cars. You have this, and I think that's what he, to a certain extent, pioneered. For me, as a leftist, not in a good way, but this, you can be an artist and you can be rich at the same time.
1: Yeah, right. But when, but when Warhol did it, he he did it in a calculated way. Yeah, he knew what he was doing. I think now, yeah, they make a huge amount of money, so they sing about it. (laughs) At least they're not pretending, you know.
0: And you say you write that the opposition to to the art world and to it comes from the conservatives. That the conservatives, after this period, they are provoked by the art world. So you have this of the art world, uh, what you say? the popular culture. Yeah, that, the, and that if you're liberal, then you then you subscribe to the popular culture, you defend their right to do whatever they're doing. Yeah. But if you're a conservative, then you're anxious about yeah. it. And it's very funny because when I was living in America, I lived in Harrisburg 25 years ago, uh, the conservatives, they were very angry about Bill Clinton and they were very angry about Marilyn Manson. And everyone, <laughs> and everyone I knew were, were Democrats, of course. And they yeah. said, you shouldn't worry about that. It's just the conservatives. No, Bill Clinton is a fine person. Ken Starr is is, is, is crazy. <laughs> but, now, but now I think things have changed a little bit. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, it's So, I, you know, it, it, in this period before 1965 or so, uh, liberals are very concerned about popular culture because they worried yeah. that it was brainwashing people and so on. Uh, the Frankfurt School is endlessly carrying on about, you know, the dangers of, Advertising and popular music and so forth, and then suddenly by 1965, that all shifts. Liberals start stop worrying about the effects of popular culture. They become actually fans of the Beatles and so on. And then it suddenly becomes a conservative obsession that popular culture is having this pernicious influence on kids and turning them into delinquents and corrupting morals and so forth. Yeah, so that's something else that happens in this period. What happens in periods that liberal intellectuals in the United States become comfortable with Hollywood yeah become comfortable with rock and roll. You become comfortable with the kind of popular culture that twenty years before they wouldn't want to have anything to do with. That's a big transformation
0: when i when I read you a book, I'm struck by the fact that there is such a public where it, it all it it's all connected to a certain extent. This yeah. is happening in in the painting. This is the review in in yeah. the Village Voice this is what this critic is writing and you have this writer coming over from Europe very inspired by it. And and I was wondering whether you would see that same thing today in America if that does not presuppose that you have a common public, that you read the same newspapers, you watch the same shows on television, that you have these old media. Do do you think that the public is too fragmented today as compared to what happened in the 50s and 60s?
1: So... My guess is that people thought it was fragmented then. (laughs) It just doesn't look fragmented to us. So 50 years from now, people will write about you and me. Oh, (laughs) it's obvious. They're just (laughs) part of the same bubble.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think, put it a different way, Uh, it just depends how you tell the story. I chose to tell the story in a way that would link up these various figures without being too explicit about it. So that when you read it, you think, oh, yeah, I remember that person, right? Now I see there's a connection between this and that. Um, so that's how I wrote it. But I could have written it a different way, or you could write the story about the last 10 years now, and you could tell the story that way, and we would see the links. It's all connected in some way, obviously. The question is, what, what level are you looking for the connections on? Um, I think sometimes people look on the wrong level. Oh, this is stylistically similar to that. So abstract expressionist drip painting is similar to jazz improvisation. It's not (laughs) fully different, but it looks the same, right? So that's not a good level of explanation. But if you get deeper down, you can find all kinds of interesting connections.
0: What 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 was it for you personally to write this book? This is also, I mean, in the beginning, you you don't hide the fact that this is a personal enterprise. There's a quote from your father, and you say, this is about the time that you grew up. This must have been like, revisiting your childhood and the formative years and yeah. the concepts that you grew up with and took for granted.
1: Well, I did, but I didn't know much about them really. I mean, I born in 1952. So at the end of this period, I'm like 13 or 14 years old. So I don't really understand Jackson Pollock or John Cage, or, but I knew who those people were. My, my parents were not, were quite like, they read 19th century British fiction. That's the idea of culture, but I <laughs> listened to the opera, but they were politically very liberal. And they knew who John Cage was and Jackson Pollock and Andy Warhol. And I remember reading Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique. When it came out, my parents had a copy. I tried reading it. I think I read 10 pages, very proud of myself. <laughs> um, uh, but so I knew, so I almost everybody, Hannah read, my father had her books. I mean, I knew almost all these people I wrote about when I was growing up, but I really had never spent time with them to figure out why they were important. Why people like my parents knew about them and thought they were important. So. I think it's true for almost any history. When you write history, you're trying to understand the history of your own subjectivity. Where did your subjectivity come from? Where did it grow out of? And I realized that mine grew out of this period without really being conscious of what was going on. So that's not the only reason I wrote the book, but part of it was to kind of satisfy my own curiosity. Uh, what was the biggest
0: surprise for you while you're researching the book and researching these years of your
1: childhood?
0: What's the surprise the most?
1: Everything. I mean, it was, it's, it's fascinating because when you plunge in, it, the book is pretty heavily researched. When you plunge in and try to kind of get to the bottom of why somebody wrote a book the way they did or why somebody, you know, looked at movies the way they did or did literary criticism the way they did, um, you always find unexpected things. Um, so every chapter to me had things that I had never known before, or never realized before. And I hope readers have the same experience. Like, you think you know about Allen Ginsberg. Do you really know? Do you think you understand Elvis Presley? Do you think you understand Derry Derrida, who's also in this book? Yeah. Well, here's what I think is really going on. And that, to me, that was the fun of it, was like uncovering the stuff. The hard part was that it's a huge book. It's not quite 800 pages, but it's up there. Um, and uh, and it was like I said to you earlier, it was like climbing Mount Everest 18 different times because each chapter is like this huge thing but um but the fun part of it was actually partly also exposing rumors that aren't really true or sort of yeah. you know received wisdom about people that's actually not the case and part of it was just trying to get a handle on what was happening that made people write and paint and criticize and make movies the way they did and that and that is a great
0: quality of the book there's a lot of fact checking as a matter of fact that song was not out at that time so he couldn't have heard that saw when he came to Andy Warhol's uh, gallery at the time, or, yeah, and, and I think it's a great quality of the book that even writers that I know very well, like Hannah Arendt, I know her very well. I get to see her in a different context here. Yeah. And yeah. Jacques Derrida, I, I, I know his story, but I never thought how much America meant to him. I didn't, I knew that he was very popular in, in America, but for us here in Europe, it was like he was this great, great, great Algerian philosopher in France. And then he gave some shows in America that was like he has America tour on the side, but the way it infected him. I never yeah. understood that before I read your book. I have yeah. one last question. Sure. This, this, this book is also about, about the founding of a new era in America. And you see signs of what became polarizing tendencies in, in America. You see, well, you, a lot of people going to universities and it seems yeah. so innocent at the time. Well, that <laughs> is a good thing. People yeah. going to universities, and you see a lot of more highly educated people concentrating in the cities. And you yeah. see there's a new liberal upper class established by by artists and journalists and writers and and academics. So you, it's it's like you see what becomes the polarizations and, yeah. and the culture wars that you have today.
1: Yeah, I just that's a good observation. I just make two sort of thoughts about it. One is that. One of the features of this period, and this is also true internationally, is that the gap, income gap and wealth gap is very small. Yes. So that the people who are making a lot of money running businesses and so forth don't actually make that much more money. Uh, I mean, they make a lot more money, but not like the way it is today. So what happens, what's happened since 1975 or so is that this wealth gap has grown enormously and people with, with higher education uh, are now making much, much more money than people who don't have that credential. So that, that's part of what exacerbates what you're talking about. The second thing is just that, to me, the key event is the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, because a lot of this is fundamentally about race. A lot of Trump support is white nationalists. There's just no question about it. And the, the Democratic Party may be to own the Civil Rights Act and therefore to own the situation of black people in America that alienated a lot of white voters. So Hillary Clinton running against the guy nobody thought could win got only 38 percent of the white vote. That's incredible. Um, I mean, 62% of white voters would not vote for a Democrat. So for Democrats to win a national election, they have to get non-white votes because the white votes aren't there. That's completely changed from before 1964. It was the other way around. So
0: absolute last question is, were there any of the conflicts that you see in your society today? that you understood better having researched and written this book?
1: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think that by the time you get to 1965 or the Vietnam period, basically the America that we live in today has come into being. It's become deprovincialized, It's become central to all kinds of global activities, not just cultural, um, and the kind of this infrastructure of the arts and culture and universities and so forth has finally been completely established. So it does help to understand where that came from. I think always when you're trying to understand something, you want to know the backstory. Where does what did this come out of? How did it turn out this way instead of a different way? And that's part of what the book tries to explain.
0: Well, thank you very much for taking your thank time, Francis, you. and thank you for your book. It's a wonderful read. I recommend thank it you. to everyone. It's out April 20th.
1: Thank you so much. Good to see you.
0: Good to see you. Det var så min samtale med Louis Menon. Nu er vi her i redaktionen for langsomme samtaler, der sætter verden sammen, blevet utroligt kritiseret for kun at kunne have vestlige tænkere. Og det er en fuldstændig og lidt berettiget kritik, som vi har taget til os, og vi har sendt forspørgseler ud i øst og vest og syd og nord i hele verden. Og jeg kan sige, at i næste uge, der går vi for første gang op med de vestlige tænkeres paradigme i langsomme samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Der skal vi nemlig tale med den fuldstændig vidunderlige indiske kulturkritiker, essayist og forfatter Pankaj. Mishra, han skal forklare os, hvordan man oplever Vesten udefra, hvordan man oplever Indien indefra, og hvordan man kan være vred i den her verden mod Vesten, og man kan være vred mod Indien, uden at komme til at ødelægge sig selv. Det bliver et show, der handler om vrede, frihed og lighed. Jeg lover, at det bliver utroligt spændende. Tak for i dag.